Uh, folks, we have been trekking through Hosea, as you know, a very striking, somewhat tragic story of a marriage that didn't go as planned. A man named Hosea took as a wife, this was according to God's instruction, a loose woman named Gomer. She was not satisfied with the husband who provided for her, protected her, and loved her. She had wandering eyes and went astray. And you can imagine how that affected him. Uh, it, it humiliated him. Uh, it hurt him to the core of his being. And I think it also angered him. But his was not an unbridled kind of an anger. It was the kind of anger that caused distress over her waywardness. He did not want her destroyed because of it. He wanted her delivered from it. And it was the anger over the direction she took and what their marriage had become. And he had a love for her that couldn't be equaled by any of her other suitors. And so he wanted her back. He was bent on her repentance and restoration. And this unusual story makes no sense, except it's meant to communicate an even more striking tale of God's covenant relationship with Israel. Also loved by Almighty God, whom uh, he desired to provide for and protect in Israel, sad to say, down to this very day, has had wandering eyes. She has become the equivalent of a harlot. She's referred to, in fact, that way, sadly, in Scripture, as one guilty of spiritual harlotry. And we read in many places in Scripture at the hands of God's prophets about his anger to be outpoured on Israel then, and I think even today. But you must not misunderstand, though God, like Hosea, also was hurt and humiliated, and uh, though God's anger has been aroused, his anger is bent on restoration of his people, not on the destruction of his people. Let me tell you, if God's anger had the purpose of destroying and not delivering Israel, there would be no Israel today. So as with Hosea, uh, God's desire is for his covenant partner to turn back to him for nobody could love her the way he does. And so we have seen that the theme of the book of Hosea, I went too far, hang on folks, here we go, it has to do with God's unfailing love to unfaithful people. Uh, don't let me reduce this to a history lesson. Uh, the application is to us today. For we too, in many ways, are these unfaithful people. And as God has been and is with Israel, so too he is with us, members of the body of Christ, even when we go astray. So this book is about not our faithfulness, Ours is limited, but about God's. The book is about God's unfailing love to unfaithful people. Now we'll see more of this tonight in chapter 7. Here's the opening verse. When I would heal Israel, God is speaking, the iniquity, a fancy word for sin, of Ephraim. Ephraim represents Israel. It was a large city, the largest of the northern tribes. Uh, when I would heal Israel and the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered and the evil deeds of Samaria, 
not the Samaritans. Samaria was, before Jerusalem, the ancient capital of Israel. You can visit it today. You can see the ruins of Samaria today. God says, when I was intent on uh, healing Israel and forgiving her iniquity, uh, they, they, they dealt falsely. Uh, uh, the thief enters in, bandits raid outside. So God was willing to heal, forgive Israel's uh, irrational sin and rebellion. But as God took a closer look, he saw even more sin. And what militated against the experience of God's forgiveness was Israel's compulsion to sin all the more. She thought it had the quality of being hidden from God's eyes, but it in fact did, didn't. In fact, he said it came to be uncovered. Folks, there's something about us as humans. We labor under the misconception that when we're on the run from God, when we, like ancient Israel, are in the midst of a pattern of sin, somehow we persuade ourselves, this is just how goofy we are, that God doesn't see that he doesn't take note of it. And so we hide ourselves from God. Um, uh, his awareness of our sin is not hidden from him. And so the text says it comes to be uncovered. In fact, God saw two categories of sin. See, they deal falsely, they lie. And the thief enters in, they steal. Uh, God saw the corruption of society, particularly in these areas. People are appropriating that which is not theirs, and then they're lying about all manner of things. There were social ills, not too unlike those which trouble us today. Um, uh, God sees it. He's aware of it. Sometimes as a Christian, if you're like me, you find yourself crying out to the Father, don't you see? Aren't you aware? Folks, he is aware. He sees there is nothing hidden from his eyes, and he acts, as you will see. So now we move to verse 2. Uh, they do not consider in their hearts that I remember their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. Folks, when God uh, looks to us, he sees our sin, and our guilt. That's what he sees. No matter how we mask it and dress it up, he can see through the external facade. He can get to the heart of the matter, and the, the heart of the matter is a sin-sick heart. When God sees even the most attractive of, of us, he sees our sin and our guilt, meaning we're vulnerable. We are in trouble. We really need some kind of covering for our sin and guilt. Is there one? Oh, yeah, there is. Listen to what Paul says. In Romans 4, 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. That's what Jesus did. He suffered and died so as to provide a covering for our sin. The word is atonement. We Jews have a holiday called Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. It's the holiest and most solemn day in our schedule of holiday observances. During that time, all Jews uh, repent, confess their sin, and look for a means of atonement, uh, 
a, a kippur, a yom kippur, a covering. Sadly, my people find it in human effort. Pledges to the, of a financial kind to the synagogue, a fasting on that day, that kind of stuff. It doesn't work. Uh, uh, for all our deeds are like filthy rags. They fall short of God's standards. We need a covering, a means of atonement beyond our effort, and that's where Jesus came in. Uh, uh, if you were to guess at the color of sin, if sin has a color, uh, my guess is you would say black. Uh, uh, sadly, uh, we associate uh, black with uh, something negative. Well, we got to stop doing that. But anyway, uh, most of us would vote the color of sin is black. In, in fact, it's not. If you read Isaiah, it will say, though your sins are as scarlet. Folks, that's a shade of red. Scarlet. Why does the Bible assign a red color to sin? Well, uh, the shed red blood of Jesus is the covering for the scarlet red nature of our sin. Uh, folks, look no further for a covering and a defense for your sin and guilt. Jesus is the covering for it. That's what he did. And now verse uh, 3 says, uh, with their wickedness, they make the king glad. So King Jesus is interested in what's good for us. He provided a way whereby we could be right with his father. He's a very beneficent king. Even at great personal sacrifice, namely his own life, he offered it so that good things would come our way. But not every king has kind intentions with reference to his subjects. And so here we're seeing a reference to kings who simply rejoice in the wickedness of their citizenry. With their wickedness, they make the king glad and the princes, other government officials, with their lies. Why in the world would government leaders be pleased with the sin, the wickedness, and the wrongdoing of their constituency? Well, I'll, I'll tell you why. They benefited from it. That's how. They were the recipient of bribes and they loved it. Is this ancient Israel or modern day America? Boy, I'm getting a little confused here. So they loved that. They didn't want people being right with God for they themselves were not. They benefited from abuse of the poor, marginalized and vulnerable members of society. They got rich and elevated on the backs of poor people who were entrusted to their charge. And therefore, they didn't want to curb the sinful appetites of their citizenry. They wanted to encourage it. They benefited from it. Now, I, I, I don't think the king above all kings likes that. So here's what he says about it in verse 4. They're all adulterers. So you see this kind of uh, analogy, spiritual unfaithfulness is likened to the kind of adultery Hosea's wife was guilty of. They're all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. What is that all about? Well, their passion 
for wickedness is here likened to the fire in a baker's oven. Uh, this is kind of an a ancient baker's oven. Uh, it gets hot and is constantly burning. And that's the parallel to the sin of the people. They're burning hot with a passion to commit sin. This is, verse is sort of saying, you can stoke up this baker's oven to be so hot that the baker need not care for it even through the night. When the dough is rising, he doesn't have to worry about it. It's so hot, it's, its heat is not dissipated by time so that in the morning, the baker could get up after a good night's sleep and find the oven just as hot as when he left it and just as able to heat up the bread. That's what's in view here. God is saying you're a lot like a hot oven. Your passion for sin doesn't diminish. It's just something that's a constant in your life. Now, here's what their passion for sin looked like in verse 5. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. What's happening there? There was something called the day of the king. What's the day? Maybe his birthday. We don't know. Maybe the anniversary of the date when he acceded to the throne. His, the anniversary of his, his inauguration day. Who knows? There was a national holiday to celebrate this day of the king. How was it celebrated? Well, they were just getting sloshed. They're just drinking like crazy to the extent that the princes, the government, became sick. You can get really sick with too much wine drinking. Uh, it's uh, sweet, and you keep going, and it can cause pains in your stomach, the likes of which you cannot imagine. That's what they did. So the government officials got sick with overconsumption of wine, and what did the king do while this was going on? He stretched out his hand with scoffers. He participated. He embraced them. There was no restraint emanating from the king. There were no guidelines. There's no higher standard of, of dignified behavior. Oh, no, man, he just joined in. He just embraced the activity they were engaged in, and he got wasted essentially just the way the rest of them did. And verse 6 goes on to tell us uh, their hearts are like an oven, so the oven metaphor continues, as they approach their plotting. Hmm. They're partying with the king as if they're friends and have an affinity for one another, and yet they're lying to him. They're really plotting against him. Their anger smolders all night, just like the coals in that baker's oven, such that in the morning it burns like a flaming fire. We know from history what they were plotting is the very assassination of the king they were partying with. In fact, in Hosea's day alone, four kings of Israel were assassinated. 
If we attempted to locate that chronologically, it probably took place between the years 752 and 732 BC. Four kings of Israel assassinated. So while these people are partying with the king, they're looking for an opportunity to kill him is what they're doing. And so verse 7 goes on to say, all of them are hot, hot with their um, uh, intent to do the king in. All of them are hot like an oven. They consume their rulers, four of them, and their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. I suppose that is the most grotesque transgression we uh, creaturely beings are capable of committing. None of them, creaturely beings, calls upon the creator. You get a note of pathos here, as if God is hurt. Can you imagine being fashioned after the image of God and giving him no attention? Going your way as if he doesn't exist. Making your decisions without acknowledging him. Living one's life while ignoring God. Oh, maybe admitting to your belief in the existence of God. You're not an atheist. Really? You can be an atheist in practice, if not in ideology. A practical atheist is someone who might admit to the existence of God, but acts as if he's not there at all. That probably is the supreme sin that you and I are capable of. None of them calls on me. Could I encourage you, and I hope I'm listening to my own words, do life together with God. Don't do it independent of the God who yearns to do life with you. I know this because he gave us the equipment for it. When scripture says he created us in his own image, I think it means he gave us a mind, as he has one, emotions, he feels, and a will, he chooses. I think he gave us those three faculties to use so that we can commune with him. He gave us a mind to think about him. He gave us a heart, seat of emotions, to have affection for him. And he gave us a will, a volitional capacity to make the choices that please him. And most of us are using that unique equipment to take us away from God. So we lend our thoughts to all manner of things but God. We lend our affections to people and things, not God. And we make decisions as free will agents contrary to that which is pleasing to God. Don't do it. None of them calls on me. Call upon him, my fellow Christians, in the course of the outworking of your day, and I think you'll hear him say, I'm here for you and with you. Let's do life together. Now, what happens when this happens, when none of them calls on me? Here's what happens, according to verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim, a, a, a figure for Israel, has become a cake not turn. Look, when you turn from God as provider and protector, you have to look elsewhere. 
uh, for protection and for safety and for direction and for provision. And so ancient Israel did this. Having rejected her maker, she had no choice but to look elsewhere. In her case, she looked to Assyria. <laughs> she looked to Egypt. She mixed with the nations instead of being purely devoted to her makeup. And as a result, God now uses another kind of a metaphor and refers to her here not uh, as a hot oven, but as a uh, cake not uh, turned. Um, this kind of thing. You, you've done this. You make pancakes and uh, it's getting you know, ready on one side, but you turn it over, and oh my goodness, it's just a moist, old, gooey, tasteless, unappetizing mess. That's, that's how God refers to, to ancient Israel, like a half-cooked pancake, a half-baked nation, tasteless, not nourishing, just a big mess, good for nothing. You see, God doesn't want his people mixing. He wants his people to be distinctly devoted to him. So we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Separate. Not weird. Just separate. Distinct. Not better. But surely having a better way. Hey, could I ask you a rhetorical question I'm asking myself? Um, um, come up with an answer to this, just you and God. Who are you mixing with? Who or what? Are you becoming half-baked, an uncooked pancake, tasteless, kind of good for nothing? What is there? Are you divided? Scriptures say that kind of person is unstable in all his or her ways. I mean, God says, I want you hot or cold. But lukewarm water, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Folks, all in or not. Don't be a half-baked pancake as was Israel. Now, here's what happens when one lives that kind of uh, life. Strangers devour his strength, yet he doesn't know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he doesn't know it. Your energy and strength comes to be sapped uh, and diminished, and you don't even realize it. It just happens. You think you are as strong and vibrant and energetic and capable as ever, but you're not. You're like an older person who thinks he or she can do what he no longer can do. I remember a few years ago, I got a ladder, big mistake, 10 feet tall. I took it to a tree in my front yard with a handsaw, and I was going to cut down some of the limbs. I knew I could do it because my mind told me I could do it. I did not consult my old body. Just listen to my mind. So I climbed up on the ladder, and there I go. And in the course of trying to cut off this branch, I felt the ladder going like this, tilting. And I knew this is not going to end well. But it's like slow motion. There's nothing you can do at that point. Down I went from a 10-foot ladder. I hit the ground, 
and knocked myself unconscious. When I came to, I felt around to see what my condition was. What did I break? Well, by God's grace, I didn't break anything, and I started to laugh at how ridiculous I was. My mind told me I had the balance and strength to do that which I used to do. That's how Israel is. To be frank with you, that's how America is. Thinking, we're tough, we're strong. Strongest military, most healthy economy. And all of a sudden, we're unaware of the fact that our strength, our power, our authority, our influence has dissipated. It's kind of like this gray hair thing. And that's what it says in this verse. You know, gray hairs coming and you're not even aware of it. Years ago, I was with my family in a restaurant. I was sitting facing my three boys. There was apparently a lady at the table behind me. And one of my kids, who I now removed from my will, by the way, because of this, said, Dad, turn around. You have the same color hair as that lady sitting behind you. So I turned around. What are you talking about? This lady had gray, almost white hair. This was an older lady. I said, I, that's not, what are you talking about? I don't look, that's not my hair color. Yes, you do. That's exactly it. And then they, they took a vote, all three of them. And so I got up and I went to the men's room to check it out in the mirror. <gasps> What happened? All of a sudden, there's like an old person living in my skin. What happened to my hair? That's the analogy here. You, you don't see it coming. You still think you're as vibrant and capable as you always were here on a national level. But you're just a half-baked pancake and your strength, authority, and influence on the world stage has dissipated, and you don't see it coming until it's too late. Israel was losing their strength, but was unaware of it. And it goes on to say here in verse 10, Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they've not returned to the Lord their God. And that's his desire for his people to return to him, nor have they sought him. For all of this, for all that was going on in their society and in their na national uh, situation, they did not read the signals. And for all this that was happening, they didn't return to him. Are we talking about ancient Israel or modern day America? After 9-11, churches were full for two Sundays. Then that's it. It didn't get the right response from Americans. We're living in a very challenging day. I think Almighty God is not out to destroy us. I think he wants to deliver us from self and uh, confidence misplaced. And I think he wants us to turn to him for he's the only solution to what ails us. I hope, I hope we don't go the way of Israel. I hope we learn our lessons. And so what happens here in verse 11, we read, Ephraim has become, look, here's a third illustration like a silly dove without sense they call to Egypt they go to Assyria think of a dove in mixing with the nations Israel was flitting about just like a goofy non-threatening yet goofy silly 
dove flitting from place to place. Israel going to Assyria, then going to Egypt, looking for the helps she could have had from Almighty God. And ignorant all along of what is best for her. I like this uh, picture. Uh, silly dove. You know, um, they don't attack. They don't have claws. Um, you, 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 they can't defend themselves. That's, that's how Israel is pictured. Like this silly dove lacking power, lacking strength to defend itself. Uh, flitting here and there for security uh, and helps in all kinds of mixed alliances, uh, but finding no help. When they go, according to verse 12, I'll spread my net over them. This is a, a figure the people of the day would have been well familiar with, bird hunters, because dove make, you know, pretty good food. Uh, they would stir up groups of doves, and when they flew, they'd put out nets, and the birds would fly into them, kind of like this, get caught in the net, and then you get to eat it. And God says, I'm going to do that to Israel. I'm going to spread my net over them. I'll bring them down like the birds of the sky. I'll chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. Woe to them, it says in verse 13, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs for they've rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. You know what you have here? I think you have, a, I think you have the parent-child relationship between God and Israel. I think you sense the grief God's wayward people have caused him. Interesting. Uh, to realize the extent to which human sin inflicts incredible hurt and pain on our maker. He's not indifferent to it. He made it possible for us to do life together with him and waltz on out of this life into eternal life. And it grieves him, just like you, parent or grandparent, perhaps have experienced the terrible feeling of having a child or grandchild Go from you. Go astray. This is almighty God as father with a desire to redeem those who are his own from their own path of destruction. But they, they only speak lies about his desire and ability to redeem them. They misrepresent the creator. They deny the savior. They call Jesus a mere man. They call him a good rabbi with good intentions, but who failed. He claimed to, to be the king of Israel and bring peace in the world. What peace? We're at war one with the other. How could he save us? He couldn't save himself. He was impaled on a tree. You see the lies and the misrepresentations, and you see how it can grieve. How would you feel if a child or grandchild misrepresented you more than anger it's a broken it's a broken heart and so they made foreign treaties instead of being in a vibrant covenant relationship with their maker they made treaties with the nations so as to defend themselves since they persuaded themselves the lord would not or could not provide for them and so God goes on to say that they don't cry to me from their heart. 
when they wail on their beds. They're crying, but these are not the tears you see of repentance. These are the tears of pain over the consequence of sin. They're recognizing they're in trouble, but they are misdiagnosing it. You know what they're calling the problem? The environment. Uh, uh, they're saying we're in a jam today because we have not treated well Mother Earth. What about our rebellion against Father God? The pollution of the environment is not the big issue. It's pollution of the internal environment due to sin that's the correct diagnosis of the problem. It's a ruse, the environment. Even if there is global warning and all this stuff is subject to lots of different scientific perspectives, I'm not arguing the case. I'm just saying it's just a clever distraction from the proper diagnosis. The proper diagnosis is I have found the enemy and he dwells within me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So consequenced by the results of sin, Israel is wailing on their beds. Why are they doing it? Well, for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves, but they turn away from me. So what does this mean? See where it says they assemble themselves? The connotation of that word in Hebrew uh, probably implies they gathered together in Canaanite worship, during which time they gashed themselves, they cut themselves, because Canaanite religious thinking was that the gods who are mad with you will be appeased by your bloodletting. So there they are on their beds, and the other connotation is they're probably sleeping on them, having relationships with uh, uh, women, uh, Canaanite women, part of the Canaanite worship. That's why God wanted it stamped out. It was really, uh, uh, it degraded and debased God's people. So there they are uh, uh, on their beds when they're crying out to God. They're not saying, uh, oh God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. No, you know what they're saying? Give us this day our daily bread. They were in it for what they could get from God to temporarily uh, meet their needs, but a relationship with him was not something they were attracted to at all. Do you remember earlier on we read in Hosea, for I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice, and the knowledge, the intimate knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So there was kind of a repentance here, but it, it, it kind of a sorrow, but it was not a sorrow unto repentance. It was sorrow over the consequence of sin and a misdiagnosis of the problem entirely. And God is grieving here in verse 15. You can hear it. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, they devise evil against me. It's the Lord as a loving father who taught his people how to be strong, how to grow, how to survive. And yet they had used what he had given them to sin against him. They treated him, in fact, as their enemy. And verse 16, 16 says they turn, but not upward. 
They're like a deceitful bow. Now here's the fourth kind of picture. They're like a deceitful or faulty bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. Uh, this will be their derision in the land of Egypt. They looked to other nations for help, but not to God. They did not turn their hearts and their minds and their eyes upward to heaven. They didn't seek the Lord's help at all. And so Israel is likened here to a faulty bow, a bow that can't shoot straight. It's crooked. It cannot hit the target. Here's a depiction of an ancient archer. I mean, what good even are the arrows if the bow doesn't shoot straight? It's good for nothing, and that's how God is referring to ancient Israel. Now, folks, four images have been given to us in these 16 verses with regard to wayward Israel, God's perception of wayward Israel. Uh, the first, just to remind you, is this, a hot oven, a reference to burning with unrestrained and unbridled passions. And the second image was this, a half-baked uh, bread mixed with worldly things so that they were half-baked. They became compromised. And then the third image, a silly dove, a flitting to and fro, looking here, looking there, depending on others instead of God. And then finally, the fourth image, a faulty bow, not being useful to God, really, as a weapon uh, to resist evil. I want to ask you a bit of a haunting question. If you had to choose, which one are you? Which one do you most tend to be of these four? You're God's people as well, and even God's people today can go astray. Which of these? Uh, could I encourage you to kind of do business with God now? Can you imagine that your waywardness actually hurts him? Tell him you're sorry. I'm sorry, Father, that I have hurt you. You've given me no reason to. The problem resides within me, not you. If you're a Christian, don't belabor the point. Thank God for forgiving you. Don't beg him to forgive you. Jesus already did that 2,000 years ago. Thank him for forgiving you. Straighten up. Don't go the way of Israel. There's time. There's time. Which one of these may be? Are you most inclined to be like? God's interest is, in not, is not in destroying you. It's in delivering you. And so interspersed with this rather harsh language of judgment in these, first, in these 16 verses, I hope you see the heart of God emerge through it all. He yearns to deliver his people. Today I was talking, um, Matt, I'm sorry, brother. I should have prepared you for this, but it's not my way. Um, that's a great guy. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Matt Stanford. Matt, Matt, could you come here? Just for, come on, don't be a baby. Come here. Come on. Matt, I need to see you. Just for a second. It's very important. Come on up here. Don't say no to a Jewish guy. He keeps coming. He, he, he'll heap guilt upon you. You wearing shorts to church? <laughs> Folks. Would you say hello to, this is Dr. Matt Stanford. 
Say hello to him. So, um, Dr. Stanford is the CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston. What is it? It's a marvelous resource that extends itself to help those in a faith-based way suffering from serious mental illness. And this man is a member of this church. We are blessed. Not just this man, his wife Julie as well. She's even better. Julie, uh, Matt's wife, is at the VBS meeting preparing to serve the kids. Matt trained us today, our staff. You talk about a privileged staff. Folks, I, I wish, well, you will get to hear from him because on some Wednesday night when I don't feel like showing up, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Stanford if, if he would share with you some of what he shared today. So helpful so instructive, but we had a little private conversation, and Matt was sharing with me an insight he had, and I came dangerously close to taking it as my own, and just saying, this is what God showed me, but then I started to read these four images here, and I thought, oh, no, I can't do it, so I was just wondering if you can share what you shared with me, so... Um, to bring home this idea that even in the midst of sin and judgment, God's intent on gracious deliverance. To tell us what you shared. Obviously, I wasn't prepared to do this this evening. Um, well, Hosea is my favorite book in the Old Testament. And I've talked to Stuart about that in the past. But one of the things that, that you don't realize about Hosea is as Hosea is, is prophesying and, and speaking God's word and calling them back to repentance in Israel and, and really telling them, Assyria is going to come destroy you. I mean, this is, this is what's going to happen if you don't do this. At the exact same time, God is sending Jonah to Nineveh to try to draw the Assyrians back to him. So he's trying to, you know, the, the God that we worship is not looking to destroy Israel. He's not even looking to destroy Assyria. He's looking to draw them all to himself. So there really is, this isn't a, a false uh, you know, kind of a, a, you know, come back to me. This is the real deal. I mean, he really wants them back. He even wants the Ninevites. He wants the Assyrians back. And uh, so I just always find it very interesting that at the same time Hosea is telling them this horrible thing is going to happen to you. These people will sweep in here and destroy you. They'll take, as you said a few weeks ago, they're going to take away your land. They're going to do all this stuff. He sent Jonah all the way to Nineveh to call them back, which... If you'll remember, they do at first come back. And so it's, a, you know, it, it's just, a, it's fascinating to think about how God is working the masterpiece out. And we always see a little, bit, a little bitty piece of it a lot of times. And so I always just find that to be a very interesting part of the Hosea. Wonderful insight. Matt and Julia are going to begin an iConnect class in Colossians. If I wasn't uh, teaching my own, I would go to his class. <laughs> you may want to think about Matt, could you, could you, in light of what you shared, it's such a great answer, could you pray for us? Thank you. I assume you're done. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, Father, we just, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that uh, you are a God that pursues us. And uh, despite our unfaithfulness, we thank you for your faithfulness and the faithfulness of your son uh, to offer himself for us and to take the place of us. Uh, I pray that we would uh, 
recognize us ourselves in these images and that indeed we might call upon you unlike the uh, Israelite kings of the day did and we will find a loving father that uh, takes us back. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.